Have you read the book called Raising Hell? Boy, this is your lucky day. Because we have a handful of these books here that everybody gets to take one per family because we had a run on these books on Thursday night. So if you don't have this book, you get to take one. Scout's Honor, just one. Please take it. We don't want any books left here this morning. Julie wrote this book called Raising Hell. Many of us read it. Claudia turned me on to what my sister Pam mailed me when I read this. I said, this is unbelievable to me because a normal person could understand this. So that means I shouldn't understand it, but I did. Beth and I read this book. It was incredible. I said I have to do a power message about this book. So I emailed Julie, oh, yeah, that'd be great. So then we had a conversation. I took some notes. And, and this morning, that message is now on philhenrypowergospel.org. It's on Twitter at philhenrypg. That's the only two places you can get it. So I hope you'll watch this five-minute message about this book and about Julie's ministry. And I just want to share one more word of encouragement. We all, I think, maybe most of us have believed, I've prayed a prayer that God has raised hell, right? We believe that, that God, there's no place called hell, except the place we make right here when we don't follow the word of God. And we don't listen to you. And we have low energy. Because in Christ we have high energy. But we all, I don't know about you, this is my experience, I came to believe that God's going to save all of mankind. I'm thankful for that. Now I'm sharing a God who loves all, not scaring if you don't. I'm asking people to turn. There's no burning, just turning. And we've done that. And I've, I've encountered a little bit of adversity. Couple neighbors, couple friends who I have to love back, right? Um. Julie wrote a book, and then all the articles that she used to publish in Christianity Today, forget about it, done. Church she was in, out. Friends, neighbors, by. Cut off for her faith. I, I like, sprained my, I scraped my knee for my faith. She got cut off. And so then she finds out there's this church in Western Pennsylvania that is like totally supportive of what she does. And some guy's doing some message and it's just a really encouragement. So Julie and Steve, they're watching right now. We love you. We want you to come to Ted Alestai. Pastor Rick already said you're going to grab the microphone when you're here. And we want to thank you for everything that you do. We love this book. We love you and your husband, and uh, come to see us. And in the meantime, let's all of us share God's amazing word. He's the Savior of all mankind. And now you get to tell us more about that. Will you? Okay, yeah, yeah. Thank you. Right. Okay, on three. Okay. We love you, Julie and Steve. Right. got to just make this loud. I'm not doing this twice. All right. Okay, we love you, Julie. So you ready? One, two, three. We love you, Julie and Steve. All right, thank you. Love you. Your turn. I could keep going, and I know Michael Mann. He'll get up here in a second. I could keep going. No, you get. No, you. No, I insist. Come on. Just like we insisted that you marry Pam. Yes, we did. So, yes, so I'm good. glad I did. Love, love this guy. Yes. Thank you. Love you One too, more. Phil. Do you know he's family? There's maybe one or two people that don't know this, that we are actually brother-in-laws, which is why I call him brother in grace. And there may be one or two that don't know that. That's why we have, one of the reasons why we have such good rapport. And I was really glad that Phil was going to do this today because this is an example of what the Holy Spirit is doing as networking. It's the Holy Spirit's way of networking. And it's very effective we have a message that brings a much larger hope to the world. Julie Ferwerda has that message. God is giving the insight to people, and he's giving it to people in, in places that you wouldn't expect. He's opening hearts that you wouldn't expect. And I believe he's bringing it into a kind of a networking. This message is going to go forward despite the gates of hell which is really the gates of Hades or the gates of death. And despite the gates that people have erected in their own hearts, 
We live in a time in which the name of God is being blasphemed, but it's not the true God that's being blasphemed, but the one who's been misrepresented by faulty traditionalism, presenting him as a, an angry God, a retributive God, and a message that should be rejected. Now God is bringing the one that should be accepted. And it's my prayer that every time this message is preached, whether conversationally, whether through Phil's message, whether through various forms of networking, conversations, messages, weddings, funerals, conversations, that the message of the larger hope will prevail in people's hearts. And that's what we have, a message of a larger hope, a hope that's universal, and a hope that only makes sense because of the center, which we call the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. I determined to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified is far more profound than we have ever imagined. And let me give you an example of this. There is this parable, and I'm going to be working it like I did with the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. This is the message, incidentally, if you're taping. This is, this is it. Consider Jesus' parable of the sheep and goats, for example, in which the Son of Man comes in his glory, and he's upon a glorious throne. But if you determine to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified, that throne is the cross. The judgment is not a separation of two peoples, goats from sheep, and one goes to hell and one goes to the joy of the Lord. The separation is that which occurred at the cross when God said no to all of mankind as defined by sin, as enslaved by sin, as finding their identity under sin and death, and God saying yes to all of humanity as created in Christ Jesus. Philip Ziegler, whose book I find is one of the most profound books I've read up to date, called Militant Grace, The Apocalyptic Turn in Theology, which goes along with this greater hope, discovering the gospel of Jesus Christ as an apocalypse of God, God's invasion into this world. We live in a twice-invaded world, first invaded by the mission of God's Son, Secondly, now being invaded by the mission of God's spirit and the gospel, it's an invasion into this evil age on a rescue mission to rescue all of humanity. Ziegler said, the cross is for Paul the central act of divine rectification, the axis on which God is turning the ages and in which Christians are participating. Right there is a volume. If you wanted to fan out that statement, you would have a volume, a book. Let me say it again. The cross is for Paul the central act of divine rectification or setting things right. The axis on which God is turning the ages and in which Christians are participating. Jesus Christ himself was the prophet of the turning of the ages. And unless we understand this, we will not comprehend the parables. None of the parables are comprehensive or comprehended by people unless they're comprehended as Jesus Christ being the prophet of the turn of the ages. And then they will be understood. Secondly, the word of God itself and the parables and the cross of Christ cannot be properly interpreted except from inside the holy of holies, if I may say that metaphorically or really, from inside the holy of holies. God has made us a kingdom of priests, says Revelation. He has made us a kingdom of priests having washed us, liberated us from our sins. That means that God has liberated us from the identity that we once had under enslavement to sin. He has liberated us from our former 
complicity with sin. He has liberated us from the old man. Recently, I saw in a movie a quote, a person quoted what a gentleman is from Ernest Hemingway, and he said, a gentleman isn't someone who looks down at others and tries to be superior. A gentleman isn't superior to people around him. He is rather superior to his former self. This kind of captures the idea that we put off the old man. We put off the former self. The former self is what God has said no to in all of humanity. He hasn't split humanity into the saved and the damned. The cross has said one big no to all of humanity as defined by sin. And yes to all of humanity as defined by God's grace and as created in Christ Jesus by God. That's the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We glory in it and we glory in nothing else. So in Matthew 7 when Jesus said, I will then say to them, I never knew you. What is he speaking about? And this I got to thinking after Phil's Excellent message on Thursday with regard to the book of Acts. Why in the book of Acts all the sermons proclaimed there? Was there never a warning about hell? And I thought about this as Peter's sermon was given in Acts chapter 2. And while he was speaking, the writer of Acts says in 240, with many other words he testified And urge them, saying, be saved from this crooked generation. Be saved, not from hell, not from damnation. Be saved, he testified and used many illustrations and many ways of saying it, Acts 2.40. Be saved from this crooked generation. In other words, be saved from your former selves. Enslaved and complicit with sin under the reign of death. I will say to them, I never knew you. Is Jesus speaking to all of humanity at once as defined by enslavement to sin? He doesn't know. He doesn't recognize that humanity. And in the book of Hosea, he said, I will say to a people whom I said, you are not my people. I will say, you are my people. To the same people. And ultimately, this is God saying, I don't know you. Defined by enslavement to sin. I don't know you. Defined by your complicity with sin. I know you in my son, Jesus Christ. I know my son in you. I know you in my son. In Christ, all of you will be made alive. Not my people are the people under sin. My people are the people in Christ. That's what the cross is. It isn't a throne in the future last judgment where he divides people into sheep and goats. It's the cross of Jesus Christ, the real throne of his glory, where he said no to all of humanity as controlled and enslaved to sin, and where he said yes to all of humanity as created in Christ Jesus. Jesus Christ was the prophet of the turn of the ages. More than that, though, he is the embodiment and the very personal access of the turn of the ages. On the cross, Jesus Christ was the hinge upon which the ages turned. He was the no to humankind under Adamic ontology and the yes to all of humankind created in Christ Jesus by God. There's no other way of viewing it. So the Son of Man saying, I never knew you, is a great compliment to us. 
He never knew us as workers of iniquity. He never knew us. He never recognized us. Thank God if he did recognize us and acknowledge us as a people under sin, then there would have been a hell and we would have gone there. But he does not acknowledge. He is for us. He was for us in creation. He is for us in redemption. He never was anything but for us. He exists and he exists for us on our behalf. And there is no other existence of God except his existence for us. Oh, how he loves you and me is so true. His passionate philanthropy is expressed at the cross of Christ. I determined to know nothing but Jesus Christ and him crucified means that there will be a last judgment, but it will be then that God will demonstrate universally what he demonstrated at the cross. A great big no to the condemned humanity under sin And a great big yes to rectified, justified humanity under grace. There can be no other kind of salvation but eternal salvation. Nor can there be no other kind of salvation for mankind except universal salvation. And so in Acts... With many other words, Peter testified and urged them, saying, in essence, be saved from this crooked generation. Where did that come from? Deuteronomy chapter 32, Moses' final speech. Deuteronomy 32.5. He said, speaking of Yahweh, God, he said, he is not corrupt. The defect is in his children. He is not corrupt. The defect is in his children. This is where Peter picked up the word crooked generation. It's the word scolia. S-K-O-L-I-A. Scolia. The word scoliosis comes from it. Crooked. A crooked generation. Because God is the incorruptible God. And his children have the defect, then God acts righteously to straighten out the defect. To set it right. To set right what's gone crooked. The incorruptible God does not need to be straightened out. His defective children need to be straightened out. God does not need to be reconciled to mankind. He's always been for mankind. Mankind needs to be reconciled to God. And thank God, God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself. Not charging the world with their myriad acts of complicity with sin. This is the heart of the atonement. Last week we began, as we said, if we were to go by the Jewish calendar, we don't, but by an analogy we can. We are in the days of awe. The days of awe is our approach this year, Tetelestai, to the Holy of Holies, from inside of which we may interpret the parables. Outside of that, you don't interpret the parables rightly. We don't realize, and Phil made this comment properly, that Matthew has a a trajectory toward A.D. 70. And the parables have to do with this change of ages or aeons, which is signaled by A.D. 70, but previously signaled in A.D. 30 in the cross of Jesus Christ. At the cross, God said no to humanity under sin. At the destruction of Jerusalem, God said no to Israel under the law that was hijacked by sin. Let me say that again. In A.D. 30, 
God said no in Christ by condemning sin in Christ's flesh. God said no and denied knowing humanity itself under sin. In other words, the woman bowed over by Satan for 18 years is a daughter of Abraham. Jesus Christ will not acknowledge her going through the rest of her life bowed over. He'll tell her stand straight as a daughter of Abraham. He says no to the crippling effect of sin on humanity. He, does, he says yes to all of us, the children of Abraham. At the cross in A.D. 30, God said no and refused to acknowledge mankind in toto, the totality of mankind, as being identified by the sin they were under. At the same cross, and especially in resurrection, which is the fruition of the cross, God said yes to all mankind, for Jesus Christ was raised for our rectification, raised for our justification. Yes to all mankind as a new creation in Christ Jesus. There is no bifurcation, no binary mankind, goats over here, Sheep over here. We all got the goat and the sheep inside, and God separated the sheep from the goat in us at the cross. We put off the old man, the man that God does not acknowledge. I never knew you. Thank God. He never knew the man that I was under sin and complicit with it willingly and on the way to self-destruction, perishing. He didn't know that man. He knows the man Christ Jesus, and he knows me as a man in Christ Jesus. I knew a man now. I know a man now in Christ. That's me. As Paul said, I knew a man in Christ 14 years ago, whether in the body or out of the body. Who's he talking about? Himself. I know a woman in Christ, you can say, ladies. I know a woman in Christ. You don't know a woman in sin, under sin. You know a woman in Christ, and it's you. We live in a twice-invaded world. First, Christ died for our sins in order to what? Rescue us from this present evil age. This present evil age includes the whole pressure of everything around us that defines us by sin. Now, did Peter leave it that way? Save yourselves from this crooked generation. I read in Luke 3, 5, which quotes Isaiah 40 in verse 4, Make straight the ways, the paths of Yahweh. And then it says, the crooked will be made straight. The crooked will be made straight. That's a promise. Yes, the generation is crooked. Why didn't Peter warn him against hell? Because Peter was warning the people in his audience to save themselves from the crooked generation that Jesus said, upon whom all these things will come, in Matthew 24, Mark 13, Luke 21, all those little apocalypses do not have to do with our future. No matter how many countless tens of millions of dollars people make on books about being left behind, it has nothing to do with your future, but everything to do with the judgment by which God said no to an Israel defined by the law hijacked by sin. And yes, to the Israel of God. The crooked will be made straight, prophesied Isaiah. The crooked generation will be rectified. Made straight is another way of saying rectified. He says, Este panta tascolia, es euthean. All the crooked will be made straight. Another way of saying, well, the next verse. 
3.6 of Luke, cited from Isaiah 40 and verse 5, all flesh together, when all times become simultaneous, and all flesh together by resurrection shall experience the salvation of the Lord. The salvation of the Lord is the rectification of the crooked. How about Philippians 2.14? Let's bring it to our house. Paul said this, do everything without complaining. He's referring back to the Exodus generation, a complaining that involves blaming. Jude 1.16 says complaining usually involves blaming and arguing. And that includes disputing about who is the greatest. Do everything without complaining, which involves blaming and arguing, which involves disputing about who's the greatest. Verse 15 of Philippians 2, so that you may become blameless and unadulterated, unblemished. Amomas here, unblemished means like lambs, like followers of the lamb. Followers of the lamb, manifestors of Jesus Christ. Instead of blaming, become blameless unblemished in the midst of a crooked and distorted generation. He uses the same phrase. That means that whatever we live in this evil age, we live in the midst of a crooked and warped. That means turned to one side generation, a generation turned to one side, obsessed with one thing, obsessed with themselves, obsessed against others. People who can't even talk about a present tragedy called a hurricane without blaming previous presidents or present presidents about their responses to hurricanes. People that are turned in bitterness one way and they can't think another way. We live in the midst of a crooked generation. There are those who turn one way right. Those who turn one way left politically. There's ideologues. We live in the midst of a generation of crookedness, twistedness, and warpedness. We live in a midst of a Christian traditionalism that portrays God as an idol who's capricious and retributive, angry, judgmental, even hateful. So that you may become blameless and pure, unblemished followers of the Lamb, if you want to bring Revelation 14.4, in the midst of a crooked and distorted or turned to one side generation. In the midst of that generation means that to be saved from the generation is not to become cloistered and shut the doors away from it, and live in a monastery or an enchanted Christian land, an enchanted candy land. But to live in the midst of a crooked generation means that we are to be transformed by the renewal of our thinking and not conform to this age. It does not mean that we enter a cloister or shut ourselves away from the world. We offer the world this greater hope that we have learned. How can we be out of the world and offer the world the hope that we have? Be ready to give an answer of the hope that lies within you. This is what we're doing. This is what happened in the early church. It happened between family members. It happened between friends. Some of the early churches were remarkably started just because brothers and sisters and in-laws and family members got together and heard Paul. Jesus came, and it was a family in Bethany, Lazarus, Mary, Martha, and it began networking from that, friends, family, social contacts. Now we have social media. When you have that kind of networking, you have to be ready to hear every kind of bitter comment from the outside, maybe, but the true networking goes on like you're seeing it today. And it's a larger hope. We live in the midst of a crooked generation. We don't judge them because we too were our former selves. We have compassion on those who have not yet escaped their former selves. We have a hope that we can offer them 
And it's a greater hope than tradition has offered. Traditional Christianity with its idolatrous picture of a retributive God is not Christianity. So, in the midst of the crooked generation means... In Romans 12, 1 and 2, we are transformed by the renewing of our thinking. And that means not conformed to this age. And that means, well, let's say this. It does not mean that we enter a cloister or shut ourselves away from the world. I've been there before in a Bible college. And it was an enchanted land. And you went out and worked in the world. You went out and worked in the world. Then you came back into Candyland where everything was idealistic and ideal. And then out there is the world. Now we are in the world. We're not of it, but we're in it. We mix with it. And we offer a hope. Consider well that this exhortation, do all things without complaining or arguing, follows on some more famous verses in Philippians 2.12. Make effective your own salvation. Work out your own salvation means make your own salvation from the crooked generation, that is, effective. With fear and trembling. What is it? The fear and trembling of awe. Philippians 2, 12 then, make effective your own salvation, that is, from this evil age, from this evil generation, from the Adamic ontology, from your former selves, with the fear and trembling of awe. These are the days of awe. The fear and trembling of awe. Why awe? For it is God in you both willing and doing that which is to his own good pleasure. The Net Bible has it this way, and I think they got a pretty good rendition of it in this case. For the one bringing forth in you both the desire and the effort for the sake of his good pleasure is God. So I back up and say to you in Matthew 7, 23, when Jesus said, then I will announce to them, speaking of himself, the son of man, I never knew you depart from me. You who work lawlessness. What is he saying there? I don't recognize you who are complicit with sin and defined by sin. And on the cross, I will say a final no to that person. I will not recognize you. I will recognize you the same person. Created in Christ Jesus, redeemed and liberated. Matthew 25, 41, then he, he's speaking of the same son of man, only in the third person. He will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Now, what do you think he's saying there? Well, here's another passage as he approaches the cross in Matthew 26, 53. Or do you think that I cannot call on my father and he will provide me at once with more than 12 legions of angels? The angels of God were with the son of man as he approached his throne. As 1 Timothy 3.16 says, he was seen by angels. And that throne is the cross where the Ancient of Days was sitting. The son went to his father, not only in glory, the son went to his father who met him on the throne called the cross. For the son died, but the father suffered the death of the son. The triune God in their passionate philanthropy for mankind suffered that death called the wages of sin, meaning the final fatal 
absolute crushing results of sin's enslavement was experienced by God. And seen visibly as it was experienced by the man, Christ Jesus. We're in the Holy of Holies now. We are a kingdom of priests after all. We have access to the Holy of Holies. The problem with the parables is that men interpret them from outside the Holy of Holies. In the outer courts. And they make God look like a vengeful God who's going to split humanity in two and send a whole bunch of them into eternal fire. You know what that fire is that he sends the goats to? With the devil and his angels? I'll explain it in a minute. In Daniel 7, 13 to 14, Daniel sees the apocalyptic vision of one like a son of man approaching the ancient of days on a throne. He's accompanied by angels. Well, we say, well, Jesus will be accompanied by angels when he comes. Well, Jesus said to people that he was talking to, including Caiaphas, the high priest, you will see the Son of Man coming with angels. That means that when he sat upon his throne, the throne was his cross. And on the cross, the angels were all around but not helping him. He came with his angels, whom he could have called to help him, but did not. The angels saw him. They were, as we might say, helpless in seeing him endure what he endured. But he comes to the Ancient of Days. That means the Father met him on the cross. The Father has not left me alone. Says John eight twenty nine. He has not left me alone. God was in Christ reconciling the world. He who knew no sin became sin. The son went to his father who awaited him on the throne, which is the cross, the place of expiation, the place where sin was put away. The place where sin was abolished. The place where God said no. I don't know you. I'm abolishing the sin that once defined you. So I don't know you as defined by that sin. Jesus said let your no be no and your yes be yes. Guess what? His no was no and his yes was yes. At the cross. I don't expect you to understand this. I only expect you to enter into the Holy of Holies where the Holy Spirit will teach you. This is the height and the depth of our awe. This is the reason for the breadth and the width of the horizon of salvation. This is the Holy of Holies, which we as a kingdom of priests may enter because the veil, that is to say, Messiah's flesh was torn in Hebrews 10, 21. God was in Christ reconciling the world to himself because the ancient of days occupied the throne that is the cross. When Jesus was going to the cross, he was going to his father. But he was also going with his father and his father with him. The father never left Jesus alone. The father and the son are one. Listen carefully. Don't divide them. If you divide the Father from the Son, you'll divide humanity into the damned and the saved. The Father isn't separated from the Son as if the Father takes the Son and beats him for mankind. The Father and the Son are not separated in their love, in their philanthropy, in their action of saving mankind. Separate the Father and the Son, you can't help separating mankind from mankind. The Father and the Son, I and my Father are one. 
and no man plucks them out of my hand. No one plucks them out of my Father's hand. The Father and the Son are one in the enterprise of our so great salvation. The Father and the Son and the eternal Holy Spirit are one God for us. You cannot say God exists and, oh, he exists for us. No, to say God exists is to say that God is for us. God is for us and God is are both saying the same thing. So in Matthew 25, 31 to 46, and this is just a prelude to what I'm going to take this parable on. Jesus speaks a parable which can only be interpreted from inside the holy of holies. The son of man came in his glory at the cross. Why did Paul say we glory in the cross? Because the glory of God is revealed in the cross. We glory in the cross. Galatians 6.14 Because that is the throne of Of the Lord of glory. If the princes of this world. The powers that be in the atmospheric realm. Knew. What would happen when they did this. They never would have crucified. The Lord of glory. You want to see the glory of God. Look no further than the cross. A crucified man. Is my God. So what? The judgment of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 was grounded in the judgment of the Adamic ontology that happened in A.D. 30 at the cross. At the cross, the Son of Man said, Depart from me to those who worked lawlessness. Meaning, he said no to all of mankind as under sin. And all mankind is under sin in Romans 3.9. All mankind under sin. He sees all of mankind all at once at the cross. All mankind were together at the cross. And he said no to all mankind under sin. And then sin was condemned in Jesus Christ. So that in resurrection he said yes to all mankind under grace. This is new territory. I don't expect you to grasp it today. But I do expect that it will be grasped as we continue day after day. He said no. To all mankind under sin, as controlled and enslaved by sin, as complicit with sin, he never recognized or knew such humanity. I never knew you. Hey, Lord, what are you saying? You, didn't know, you don't know me under sin, all bent under the power of sin and all complicit with it and agreeing with it and going with its lust? You, you're saying you, you don't know me that way? No, I'm not saying I don't know you. I'm saying I never knew you. I never knew you that way. Never. Even when I was complete, I never, ever knew you that way. You don't understand. I've always been for you. It's not that I wasn't for you, but I made myself for you by pounding the hell out of my son. My son and I are one in our being for you. I through his faithfulness, justified the circumcised from his faithfulness in Romans 3.30. I, by the same faithfulness of my son, justified and rectified the Gentiles. Same faithfulness, Jews and Gentiles, justified. You're saying you don't know me then after my sinful condition? No, I'm not saying I don't know you. After your sinful condition, I'm saying I never knew you after your sinful condition. Put off the old man. So we can say to the old former self, depart from me. People around you know that person. That's why Peter said they're amazed that you don't go with them in the same 
activities that you used to go with them in. Because you put off the former self. They still know you as the former self. God doesn't. They do. So First Peter says, no wonder they, they are wonder. They're in awe. How come he doesn't come with us? How come she doesn't come with us to do the same things we used to do? Because they've recognized what God recognized about them. Not only that, she probably loves you girls because she sees you already there before you even see yourselves there. He never recognized such a humanity. Never. So at A.D. 70, yes, it was a terrible judgment, but it was a restorative judgment. What was God saying? What was the Son of Man saying? The Son of Man came in that judgment. What was he saying? I don't recognize an Israel that is under the law that's been hijacked by sin. I don't recognize you as enslaved by sin. You think the issue is to get out from under the enslavement of Rome. I think the issue is that you get out from the enslavement of sin. Anyone who is under sin is a slave to sin, Jesus said in John 8, 35. I've come to set you free from enslavement to sin. A.D. 70, then, was the judgment which has been predicted by Jesus, the prophet of the turn of the ages, Predicted by him, it is God saying no to an Israel that is defined by the law that was hijacked by sin. So that now there is the Israel of God upon whom there is mercy and peace. In other words, at the cross, from the glorious throne, the Lord of glory said yes to all of humankind as rectified, reconciled, and set right by the divine action of a new creation. Jesus let his no be no and his yes be yes. Now he's all yes with you. Now he's all yes. So, that goats were sent into the fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels means that false Israel as well as fallen angels were to be purified to their pristine creation by God's justice, the principle of which is God's love. That's a long sentence. I'll say it again. That goats in the parable were sent into the fire that was prepared for the devil and his angels means that false Israel as well as fallen angels were to be purified back to their pristine condition by God's justice at the cross, the principle of which is God's love. The parables by which Jesus spoke are metaphorical language. Listen carefully. And this also goes with Phil's excellent talk on speaking plainly, plain language from Thursday night. The parables by which Jesus spoke are metaphorical language which speak plainly. Metaphorical language which speaks plainly and prophetically of the judgment of the cross in which God said no forever to Adamic ontology, and yes, forever, to a new creation in Christ Jesus. Now, this is where words like 2 Corinthians 1, 18 to 22 come into focus in the right context. Let me read them. As God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. I was actually asked, the person that first witnessed to me, I said, if I'm saved, will that mean I'm always saved? He said, yes and no. That didn't help me out at all. So I put off any commitments I had to God. If, that, if, that wasn't, if he wasn't going to be all in for me, I wasn't going all in for him. Forget about it. He said yes and no. 
our message is not yes and no. As God is faithful, pistos, that God is faithful, just as God is faithful, our message to you is not yes and no. For the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was proclaimed among you by us, was not yes and no. On the contrary, with him, it is always yes. And then, I love 2 Corinthians 1.20, for however many promises God has made, in him they are yes. Therefore, the amen is also said by us through him for God's glory. Moreover, in verse 21 of 2 Corinthians 1, moreover, the one who secures us in Christ and anointed us is God. In verse 22, he has also marked us with a seal to identify us and has given us the first installment of the Spirit in our hearts. Why? So that even now, we can have the life and the livingness that we will one day have completely at the parousia and then onwards. So in closing, consider that the promises of God spoken through the mouth of all the prophets. Now, I've, I've talked about Acts 3.21, ad nauseum almost, although I don't think you can really get sick of it. All the prophets, God spoke through the mouth of all the prophets, not some of them, all of them, from the time of the beginning, from time immemorial, about a universal restoration. The reply has come from dispensationalists. They'll say, that's just speaking of God restoring stuff related to Israel. Then why did prophets speak of it from time immemorial, from the time of the very beginning, from the time of the fall of Adam, from the very time immemorial? Why are they talking about a universal restoration if it only applies to things about Israel? When they're starting right at the beginning, they're speaking about a universal restoration of all beings and all things over the course of all times. That promise uttered by God to all the prophets of a universal salvation is yes and amen in Jesus Christ, the Son of God. He's the reason why there's a yes to it. Not because you said yes to God, but because God said yes to you. We have made a new citadel, an idolatrous shrine, out of our own human free will. When our salvation is due to God's will. It is not of him that willeth, nor of him that runneth, said the King Jameseth, but of God who shows mercy. God said yes to you. This is another way of saying God is for us always. I never knew you under sin. I always knew you in my son. Always and always will. That's why nothing can separate you from the love of God as it is in Christ Jesus. I'm going to give you a few conclusions from some of my theologian friends. I, I say friends. I have never met them, but I read them. Conclusions. What about living then? What about why do people get? Well, we explained why some people, why we go through tribulation and why we're supposed to glory in it, exult in it and triumph in it in Romans 5. But there's another reason for suffering. People do reap what they sow. Because if with one's liberated will, a man or woman insists on being the human being that God has denied, then they'll reap a harvest of misery by sowing to that sin-controlled identity. A harvest of misery that ends with physical death and does not go beyond physical death. Can't. But if a person sows to the spirit and to the spirit-controlled ontology or the new creation that that person is, they will begin to reap even now a harvest that will continue when the old age is done and the messianic age is in full flower. 
Jesus Christ, all of his parables were parabolic prophetic predictions of the turn of the ages. They all had to do with the upcoming event that would bring universal salvation and that would bring universal saving judgment and a universal denial of Adamic ontology of humanity as it exists in Adam under sin and a total affirmation of all of humanity in all of its times as the object of God's rectifying, setting straight. All the crooked will be made straight. Conclusion. How about Douglas Campbell? Page 668. Yes, I did read all the way to that and through that. If I hit you with that book, I would be criminally charged. That's how big it is. Page 668. He says this, contrary to the teacher's threat of a frightening eschatological scenario. Oh, how many times have we heard a frightening last times scenario? A frightening eschatological scenario, says the false teacher whom Paul opposes. I love this. It was worth reading the whole 890 page book or whatever it was to get to this couple of quotes from Douglas Campbell. He says, contrary to the teacher's threat of a frightening eschatological scenario, the point of view of Paul's gospel, that's what I'm interested in knowing, is that, quote, the decisive aspects of the eschaton have already taken place. The decisive aspects of the eschaton, the eschatological future, have already taken place. You might ask me. Where? I would say in Jesus Christ and him crucified. And he goes on to say, accordingly, have disclosed just what the decisive aspects of the future judgment will be. In other words, the future judgment is going to be kind of a recapitulation of the judgment of the cross where God's passionate philanthropy for mankind was revealed. And God's judgment on the old Adamic existence happened. You talk about surprise. It's all going to be pleasant surprises. I'm not going to be surprised that a lot of jerks I know are going to be in heaven. I know they're going to be there. They're not going to be surprised that me, the jerk they knew, is in heaven. Or they may be. There's guys I went to Bible school with that don't think I'm going to be there. You can't. Not if you're a heretic and an apostate and a cult leader. Those three things. Wait a minute. The heretic apostate cult leader's here? Yep. So, he goes on to say this. I like this because this takes some guts to say this. Douglas Campbell, Duke University. Quote, there will in fact be no future retributive judgment. There will instead be a triumphant realization for all of what the elect already know. Do you realize how powerful and potent that statement is? There will, in fact, this is Paul's point of view. This isn't Doug Campbell. This is Doug Campbell reading Paul, and this is me reading Paul, too. This is what I see Paul seeing. Now, I know some of you read Romans I'm not speaking to you. I'm speaking to people that are against the message. I know some of you have read Romans and maybe read it 10 or 12 times in the King James. But you know what that means that what you know about Romans? Squat. You know nothing about Romans. After studying it for 45 years and after studying it for hundreds and thousands even of hours, I'm going to tell you that I agree with this. 
There will be, in fact, no future retributive judgment. There will be instead a triumphant realization for all of what the elect already know. And again, Mr. Philip G. Ziegler said this, We appreciate most fully both the radically gracious and mercifully humane character of eternal life. You mean you're telling me, Mr. Ziegler, you're telling me that God is radically gracious and mercifully humane? Yeah. God who created us and redeemed us is actually mercifully humane. His last judgment is going to be mercifully humane. He is a passionate lover of mankind. Well, we thought God had no emotions. Then why does he read Hosea and tell me God doesn't have passionate love? Tell me, after you read Hosea, tell me God has no passionate love for mankind. He says in one, he humanizes himself on purpose and he said, Ephraim, I'm done with you. And the next chapter he says, how can I be done with you, Ephraim? I love you. So Ziegler, Mr. Ziegler says, I suggest when we acknowledge that life to be the fruit of of God's redemptive overthrow of humanity's utter usurpation by sin and death. God's redemptive overthrow of humanity's utter usurpation by sin and death. Sin and death usurped mankind and defined their identity. God's judgment overthrows sin and death's definition of you and releases you. It's a saving judgment. It's a saving judgment. Can you blame people for rejecting the form of Christianity that presents a retributive, capricious God, capricious and, oh, I'll pick them for eternal life and, hey, the hell with them. Let's throw a dart at the map. And if, if it hits this place or hits that person's house, let's damn them to hell. Okay, that'd be fun. And let's save these people over here. That's a capricious God. That's an idol God. That's not your God. I don't blame people for rejecting that idol. So I'll say it again. Ziegler, we appreciate most fully both the radically gracious and mercifully humane character of eternal life, I suggest. When we acknowledge that life to be the fruit of God's redemptive overthrow of humanity's utter usurpation by sin and death, the last judgment, he concludes, is a judgment unto life, eternal life, not least because it is the terminal defeat of death's annihilating enmity. The defeat of death's annihilating enmity. The annihilation of annihilation. You want to talk about annihilation instead of hell? Well, annihilation is annihilated. And your doctrine, I was almost going to say sucks. But I'll say is possibly incorrect. It's incorrect. So then, here's my conclusion. So by the parables... Jesus was the prophet of the turn of the eons. And in the Christ event, Christ crucified and raised, Jesus was the axis, A-X-I-S, of the turn of the eons. In him, God condemned the humanity whose identity was derived from Adam's sin. And in him, By his resurrection from the dead, God affirmed, said yes forever to the humanity whose identity arose from God's act of new creation. The Passion of the Christ, the movie, was correct when the writers made Jesus say as he was marching up the hill to Calvary, carrying the cross, When his mother said, what's going on, basically, what are you doing? He said, mother, I'm making all things new. That's exactly correct. That is exactly correct. I'm making all things new. 
Behold, I'm making all things new. Where? Christ in him crucified. This is the meaning of Yom Kippur. This is the meaning of the day of atonement. This brings us to repentance. Yes, it does. The ten days of awe in the Jewish calendar were intended to bring people to repentance. And by that I mean we repent of our idolatrous concepts of a retributive God. God calls the church today, the so-called church, to a repentance from their concepts of a retributive God. One more time, Ziegler. It's so, the, the book was so well worth reading. It was only 200 pages, but man, was it good. Quote, no such reduction of righteousness to punitive retribution is warranted or indeed theologically cogent as it forfeits the biblically specific semantics of divine justice and conjures up instead a damaging image of a capricious, hostile, and wrathful God. Repent of holding a view and a concept of a capricious, hostile, and retributive God. Repent. And God will grant you this repentance. My final conclusion, quote, A-R-K, you can quote me. The last judgment is totally identified with Christ's rectifying work on the cross, whereby all the crooked are made straight. And God's resurrection of him from the dead. It is a manifestation of God for us, Romans 8.31, of God's passionate philanthropy. Oh, how he loves us. Of his abundant mercy and great love that he has for us, saving us by grace and making us alive while we were still dead in sins. The love of God in Christ Jesus from which we can never be separated and in which all humankind are to be united. Father, I pray that this message uttered from the Holy of Holies where Jesus Christ became and ever lives as our expiation and our advocate. I pray that this message will in fact evoke faith in millions. I pray that this message, networked as it's being as we even saw today, through so many servants and through all of us here today, will bring about, well, I'll just ask you, Father, grant repentance to those who call themselves the church. Repentance from idolatrous concepts where we've turned you into a God of retribution and hostility and anger. Grant us repentance so that we can truly see you as for us, as for all of humankind, as the one who freely gave your son and freely gave yourself in that giving for us all.